Black Cats Run podcast. I'm Tristan Black Ingersoll. This is Black Cats Run. Today's episode, Run Me Down, Part B, continuing from the preceding episode where we introduced a conversation about fatigue, the recognition of fatigue and the role that fatigue recognition then must necessarily play in the process of trying to train to improve in endurance sports and probably other domains as well due to fatigue being a pervasive phenomenon in basically all areas that we can pursue. In today's episode, in particular, we're going to get into the concept of perception of fatigue as it relates to movement and the production of power. Let's get into today's episode. I have COVID right now. My wife had it. She was totally trashed for essentially a whole week. So now I have it. And, you know, of course, I don't want to share with anybody. So I'm, you know, following those guidelines around not going around people. And I'm sure my body is affected by it. Uh, But in terms of what I've experienced, my voice was kind of a little bit hoarse for a couple days, but otherwise I couldn't feel anything. Uh, maybe I was a little sleepy, but I don't know, for me, <laughs> the desire to constantly take a nap is nothing unusual. And when I exercise, too, uh, I really haven't felt anything um, until I start trying to increase the intensity of the exercise. So, for example, I had done some uh, efforts, running efforts earlier, middle of last week or so, and uh, I had done three minute, 15 second intervals. I did seven of them at about 374 watts, right? I'm using the stride pod these days, which, you know, supposedly was 625 pace-ish, and my heart rate didn't get over 155, which was uh, is pretty significantly low for me. I've said in other episodes that I don't necessarily think that the heart rate is this thing that we should look at with a level of nuance um, and like worshipfulness that you know people give it this oracle like quality. But it's also true that you know your heart is reacting in you know as a system, right? It's a part of your body's physiological processes. Um, and that when you do have significant variation in heart rate, that that does correlate to variations in effort. So being down to 155 is super low. That's um, essentially at the borderline of just like going very, very, very easy effort. So that was kind of, you know, right when you see those things in your training process, you know, you always get sort of excited and then you start thinking, hmm, I wonder how this is incorrect. <laughs> the idea, right? Oh, yeah, I finally magically made the 
the big improvement because you know that's not how it works. So I went to test the threshold then uh, this past Friday, two days later, um, but it was already messed up. And I had noticed the day before that, you know, I had started losing my voice and I was like, okay, this is probably the onset of um, the COVID. And so when I did the test, um, you know, I did the 10 minute steps as I've been doing all along. For those of you who've been sort of paying attention or, or monitoring my exciting progress in my running threshold over the, since uh, July. And as I did this, uh, what I noticed was right away, the lactate concentration at baseline was higher. And I could tell even that it just didn't feel quite as easy. And I think when you I do the testing, and maybe this is true for other people, but I start to think a lot more carefully about my effort because I'm trying to figure out like, okay, how far do I think I'm really going to go? Um, and just the lactate concentration at that effort was lower with a really easy effort at, you know, 260, 280 watts. I might be 0.5, 0.4 millimole even sometimes. And it was uh, like 1.0.9. So it was just off. Um, and I ended up not really actually testing any worse than I had on the test I did at the end of October, which was interesting because I think that's reflective of the fact that I would have seen uh, an improvement, but it just didn't feel exactly the way uh, I wanted to feel, right? In terms of like recognizing this feeling of A, improvement, but also B, just, you know, the very, nothing dramatic, but a sense of a lack of lethargy. But I still went out then again in the evening um, to do a second session and I did uh, 14 400s um, at about 375 to 380 watts and, you know, felt basically fine. So then I was like, okay, you know, I'm sort of wondering in general now about with the treadmill because uh, my wife got a treadmill. And of course, I am taking a liberal advantage of it. Um, you know, I figure, hey, here's an opportunity for me to do more experimentation and then, you know, to eliminate the variable of trying to do uh, running workouts in the dark at 5.30 in the morning, um, which I don't mind per se, but, you know, I think it has, I've noticed that it'd be easier for me to accumulate fatigue, um, you know, running like that. And that, that maybe this is a better mechanism by which to regulate my effort. So I'd been doing that and I do feel it's been a better mechanism to regulate my effort and then consequently to eliminate all of that excessive fatigue that I had built up earlier in the fall going into the beginning of October. So Sunday, I thought that, okay, I'll go out and I want to jog and see if the watts on the treadmill produce the same speed or effort when uh, running outdoors. But, you know, even just jogging around, I felt very flat. And uh, when I got to the track and started trying to run, I said, okay, first I'm just going to run a half a mile and just try to go what feels appropriate. And, uh, you know, I came around at 800 which was 353 watts. So I was like, okay, well, those watts in the pace are, are matching the watts in the pace on the treadmill, but this doesn't feel very good. So I said, okay, now I'm going to try to run faster. And I did two uh, 400s at 392 uh, watts, which were both around, which were both uh, uh, 92 second 400, right? So that's 6.08 to 6.10 pace-ish, right, for 
the mile. And uh, I was like, okay, that just doesn't, you know, I couldn't really find that. And I thought about sort of staying there and trying to get down specifically to that 374 watt range. But I was like, you know, I just don't feel exactly functional. I just, I just don't feel comfortable or natural trying to do this. And it made sense to me because I was aware that I had COVID, you know, um, still do right now. Uh, what was me, right? But, um, you know, I was aware of that COVID, you know, probably having a respiratory effect. And, you know, it did feel like uh, I was just not comfortable. Um, I didn't feel like the movement of running was out of reach. I didn't feel like I was trying to run at a velocity that was just uh, physiologically uh, or biomechanically, I mean, inaccessible. But just the level of exertion and, you know, just there was no like it was over, right? It just was not consistent. So I need to do more uh, experimentation here, you know, when I have a more level uh, playing field for myself in terms of like when I'm not like going from doing some nice uh, intervals without an illness to then uh, doing intervals with the, you know, most in vogue respiratory illness (laughs) going around these days um, and see what that would translate to. But I also think it's significant because it's an excellent illustration of the invisibility of fatigue. We can be affected and limited and experience fatigue without actually recognizing it. And I think this goes on all of the time. And you know, this goes to one of my concluding thoughts from the last episode that I think probably 95% of people in endurance sports are overtraining because we are taught to perceive the what is a state of overtraining as actually the uh, like beginning point of benefit that people think that you're not improving until you've reached the overtraining threshold and then only in these instance you know rare instances then are we identifying overtraining and so people may say well actually overtraining is very common but if you change uh, your paradigm of consideration for that to saying that you know, 95% of the population is overtraining, then I would say overtraining is you know, underdiagnosed. I don't really know to what extent it's really fair to say you know, diagnosed in terms of a medical sense. I'm not really sure that overtraining is, I mean, it's certainly not a disease per se. I mean, it could be a psychological, maybe not a psychological disorder, but it could be a disordered psychological um, manifestation of behaviors that we have sort of been trained into applying. But fatigue, if we define fatigue essentially as an inability to exhibit a psycho-physiological uh, response of energy um, in order to engage with a given external load, then I think that you know we're frequently experiencing fatigue. Because if you consider that like Um, The ability to respond to a fixed resistance or fixed uh, physical exertion or fixed uh, training load um, that shouldn't that should really only go down if our fitness has declined in essence. So if our fitness hasn't really declined and we're experiencing some variability in our in our capacity to respond in an equal manner to that training load then to me, it seems reasonable to say that, well, that must be what fatigue is, right? And, 
you know, I think people oftentimes accept going out and, and training at that lower intensity and expecting that to be normal, right? That like, okay, well, sometimes I'm going to go out and I'm going to be tired. I'm going to struggle. And then so the sometimes people say, well, I guess I'm just going to recover today or though I really got to push through it. And, you know, okay, well, I pushed through it. So I still got the benefit. I don't know if that's true. I think what you really did is you just ignored that fatigue, which, I mean, when we start to talk about it, maybe it's not actually that invisible, but if somebody doesn't see it, then it's, it is functionally invisible. So when you, it takes a significantly greater effort to perform uh, the work that you want to do, then that's a problem, right? So for me, I ran that half a mile and, and 329 at 353 watts, and it felt like it took way more effort. I didn't feel like I was floating. It felt, you know, deliberate. It felt awkward. Um, my cardiovascular stress seemed to be, you know, notably higher than what I would usually expect for that level of effort, right? So, but in this context, I'm aware of the of this COVID thing. But if I hadn't been aware of COVID, you know, I what might I have thought? I, well, once again, I, you know, I guess I'm too tired from doing those, uh, the test, and then the 400s on you know two days ago on Friday, and then maybe I should be concluding that uh, you know the treadmill is just massively easier than real running. Or, you know, the, the stripod doesn't work correctly on the treadmill, blah, 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 right? You start to try to explain it. None of those things really make sense. But if you don't have a, the opportunity cost of explanation is relevant here, right? Because we have the, you know, explanation of a respiratory condition, right? We have the explanation of COVID. It's easier to displace or, you know, recognize essentially the stupidity of some of those other explanations. But a lot of times, right, we're concocting these strange explanations because we don't really understand what's going on. You know, the problem is, is invisible, right? Um, and, you know, right, and I know I have COVID because I tested positive for COVID, right? So the fact that I'm not, you know, um, straight jacketed to the couch in a fleece blanket um, doesn't mean that I don't have COVID, right? It just means that what I'm experiencing is different, right? That there's a degree of invisibility. You know, also the the reason why the Spanish influenza, this is sort of an aside, but it's relevant to this concept of visibility versus invisibility. The reason why this Spanish uh, flu, so-called Spanish flu, World War I was so bad um, was because usually with communicable diseases, if they're highly communicable, it has to be, they can't be so severe as to just like take the carrier and just like, leave them unable to move. But they were taking the worst cases of the flu out of the trenches and then moving them around. So that then that sort of selected for the more virulent, aggressive strain. And whereas, you know, the natural process of this stuff is that over time, um, it would be a more milder, mild version of this stuff that's going to be more communicated, right? So that, you know, I might not be experiencing symptoms of COVID outside of what I'm noticing in my exercise, um, you know, which is not what most people are trying to, you know, go out and, and not what most people are concerned about if they have COVID. But it's also the case that that would then make it so that I could be out, you know, spreading <laughs> disease to people because I would otherwise be, um, have been oblivious 
to that, right? And so again, this idea of invisibility and an inability to recognize what's going on or ability to underdiagnose, right? Oh, I am hoarse, whatever. I speak a lot, you know, for my job as a teacher, right? Okay, I guess, well, it must be one of those things. Maybe the air is dried, right? You just start concocting explanations that make increasingly little sense. The other explanation, of course, is to fall into the trap of the, you know, I did not or I cannot try hard enough to, you know, what's wrong with me. Um, the fall is, you know, usually the big finish this part time of year. November is the big finish for a lot of people's cross country seasons. And I think most people are usually left wondering what the heck happened, right? We did, did all of these workouts. They felt they had all of these indicators in, in place. Um, and it's common for people to talk about, you know, feelings of, you know, disappointment. It can be pretty emotionally devastating for people, um, you know, especially because we sort of get into this stuff because we're chasing an expectation or we're chasing the ambition. We're focused on some sort of a accomplishment that we're hoping to reach. And then usually for most people, it doesn't happen. And I and so people try to explain that, right? Well, they're not recognizing that the fatigue was what limited them. Because if you can do something in a race earlier in the season, or if you can do something in a training session, and then you're not doing it in the race, it's not a lack of psychological capacity or, you know, tenacity. Um, it's fatigue. But if you're not tuned to recognize that in that right, in that correct manner, um, then that to you is invisible. And people then reach a set of conclusions about what was cause and effect, and then they revise their strategy or they continue doing the same strategy when really the conclusion should be that, okay, if I'm running below or riding below or swimming below or whatever you're doing, if you're racing below what you could do in training, then that means that you are creating too much fatigue when you go to the starting line of the race and then it doesn't, right, it's not working. And what you need to revise strategically is you need to revise the way in which you're thinking about and conceptualizing fatigue. Um, and that's difficult when we go to the idea again that overtraining is the threshold at which people think they're starting to get better. So in a workout, people are overtraining in workouts especially in their specific workouts for runners. I think this is very common, has always been very common. They're overtraining in those workouts and then they're like at a total loss in terms of, well, what went wrong? What am I supposed to do differently? You know, when I coached cross country, everything was very controlled. Our, our training runs were, I've said this before, but we're 930 pace and we had 14 athletes running between 1640 and 1535 on that cross country team at our peak and you know training runs were very slow our threshold sessions were six minutes per mile um no faster i probably would and if anything was going to do anything differently i would probably have them run easier in the workouts and easier on those runs but most people the opposite is true right so there's this tension between our perception of you know how much fatigue we need to create but when people think about workouts, they don't think about fatigue. They think about pushing themselves. They think about getting better. Um, you know, my favorite example was a cross-country coach at the state championship one year yelling to the athletes as they went by, 
you know, remember the workout, remember the workout, which at least to my imagination implied they had done some monumental workout. And unfortunately for the athletes on that team, they didn't end up running particularly well. You know, my explanation for that, which nobody asked for, but I'm going to give it anyway. My explanation for that is that they had fatigue, but that to them, that fatigue was invisible. And, you know, when we try to recognize what's going on, right, it's about our paradigm of what our perceptions need to be oriented on. And, you know, I think when we look at the problem of fatigue, we need to consider it to be something that's absolutely essential to learn, to be aware of, to process as athletes um, and as coaches and for coaches to help athletes get to the point where they can have that awareness. Um, and one part of this goes to looking at at any given you know velocity or work rate or wattage, um, what's your lactate look like? Right. Because we know and we've established, at least on this podcast, that, you know, the point of lactate accumulation um, is bad in the sense that, I mean, it's not strictly speaking bad. Nothing bad is happening to you per se, but it's bad because it indicates that you've crossed right that threshold. And a lot of people, though, are training where they're looking for significant uh, lactate accumulation. You know, you look at uh, Lionel Sanders did a mile repeat. YouTube video where he's trying to get up over four millimoles and, um, you know, pretty significant blood lactate concentration. And it's like, that's giving you so much fatigue and yeah, you're running a great velocity. And so nobody's really going to question that. But at the same time, I knew plenty of guys that I ran with in college who could have done those mile repeats. And then they were going out and running 26, 27, 28, something, for 8,000 meters cross country, you know, it doesn't translate. Um, and again, it was a mismanagement of fatigue because you can't manage something you don't identify, but you can also identify fatigue simply by the fact that again, when you go to race, you go to do the competitive performance and you can't match the performances of training, then obviously it wasn't there. And you put out these big efforts in training. It takes a while to recover. And uh, that's one of the things that's interesting about, you know, the easy, easy interval method by Klaus Lux is he talks about, you know, this as a concept that, you know, it takes forever to really recover from those those workouts and they're just not really necessary. They're not really giving you much benefit. And I think, you know, in some sense, good luck, right, trying to convince people to perceive this stuff differently, Um because it, you know, conflicts with our our notions and the romanticism of what training should be and, and what it should um, look like. You know, our expectation of mind over matter encourages us to ignore, you know, the the signals in our brain that might otherwise help us identify fatigue, right? And, you know, when, and I think junior, younger athletes will oftentimes be people who are most in tune with this because they haven't had it beaten out of them. Right. And they're like, Oh, I don't know. I don't feel good. I don't feel right. And what, what are they told? Well, you got to push yourself. That's the whole point is to challenge yourself. And that's because the coaches have been totally like incepted with this notion that, you know, they're there to teach people how to push themselves. And I don't think that's something people need to be taught. You know, I think if people could listen more to the athletes and we're more willing to be like, okay, we don't need to do a workout, but 
I think certainly for running coaches, it's kind of like, well, if we aren't doing workouts, then what's the point of my existence? You know, so there's another limiting paradigm. Um, so, right, we need to then train our brain, right, to perceive fatigue, uh, you know, either differently or in some case to be able to perceive it in the first place. And a second part of this, though, really has to do with the nature of the invisible versus the visible. And there's a whole history, uh, certainly in American culture, of vis- of the visibility of deservedness, um, the sort of conspicuous consumption behaviorally of the justified. And if we look at this historically, I think we can better recognize and understand why this invisibility factor plays such a significant role in our perception of fatigue and, you know, that this invisibility is a, is a plot as a product, excuse me, of our blindness as much as anything else. So in 1905, Max Weber, sociologist uh, born in Prussia, published, you know, his book, uh, Protestant Work Ethic, excuse me, the Protestant Work Ethic. And uh, early American, as in colonial uh, Protestants, for example, believed in, you know, these very strict ideas of form and function in society. And there was a, you know, certain qualities of asceticism. Um, You know, there were laws in parts of New England during the colonial period, you know, that regulated how people could dress and, you know, things like jewelry, you know, and sort of this enforced, um, we might call that modesty now. I don't know if that would necessarily be the appropriate term for the time, but we'll just call it, you know, sort of modesty. But, you know, really Puritans are trying to show, these Protestant Puritans uh, in colonial America were trying to show signs of God's grace or or however they, they thought of it, and which was rooted in their notion of predestination, um, which basically they felt that God had determined uh, who would go to heaven, and those people had been pre-selected. However, these living saints, or whatever we want to call them, could be identified um, due to their holy nature, right? They would show um, the, their comportment, you know, which was predicated on like the social construction of this of the predestined um, would prove that they were there, right? So this is a, in contrast to, you know, especially in medieval um, pre-Reformation Europe, the, you know, Rome Catholic Church, right, selling indulgences and basically you know, as religion often does, finding ways to take people's money. Um, you know, we're selling people money to be saved X number of years in purgatory or whatever. I mean, what an incredible form of insurance, I guess. Um, pretty original scam. But this process of, uh, you know, doing that was a part of one of the factors that sort of drove towards the Protestant Reformation. And this idea of needing to sort of separate yourself from from that kind of process is where we see um, this idea of predestination, right? That it's sort of in contrast, that you can't buy your way or bribe your way uh, into this. And what this does then is on the one hand, I think it creates this illusion of a sort of more of a um, egalitarian or equitable or democratized, you know, process of religious salvation or Christian salvation, um, except for the fact that it's predestined and the people who um, are going to be culturally, because the only thing that's meaningful here is within community, 
uh, who is going to be culturally perceived as predestined. Because when we're dead, we're dead. Um, <laughs> it doesn't matter. We're not going anywhere, right? So this is all a socially constructed system. Um, so, you know, the, these people who could follow the restrictive tenets of their culture are going to benefit from this social construct of the predestined, um, you know, their predestined nature is manifest. And so then that's going to, you know, um, give them social status. And we see this behavior is very normative socially. I'm not saying it's, you know, necessarily good, but I'm also not saying um, that it's bad. It's just kind of like there and it's a very accessible behavior for people to be able to get to, um, which is the point at which they essentially like identify the benefits of presenting in particular ways and then virtue signal accordingly. And so this predestination stuff, um, this does not need to be a bucket that ultimately can hold water because we're talking about an entirely fictionalized way of understanding the world, a belief system. Um, so you can, you can think in that vein, whatever to be true that you agree as a social group to be true, just like setting the rules of monopoly. Um, you can change the rules of monopoly if you think that it's too corrupt or something, right? There's nothing to say you can't do that. But there is significance, measured significance, when we think about the ways in which beliefs um, lead to real behaviors and perceptions and that those dictate the way people interact and make choices. Then we can start to measure something that's significant about this. And the idea is that this Protestant work ethic um, you know, that this essential, you know, virtuous um, nature to like work hard and, um, you know, eschew, you know, material things and be humble and this kind of stuff. And by the way, humbleness is something that we hear a lot, you know, um, is pretty contemporarily popular as a term, right? And so these, these things are more embedded historically. Um, than people realize because they're just most people are not tuned into the ways in which this stuff has developed over time. But I think that the Protestant work ethic, right, which for um, to be clear, right, for Weber, he felt that this um, was the reason why there was the growth and success of capitalism. Um, and it's certainly observationally correct that capitalism is predicated on the notion that you know individual success, you know, above average wealth as possible, and that it is justly earned and distributed um, in proportion to the work ethic that individuals have presumably um, used to reach that point. But I think the Protestant work ethic might be better thought of as a kind of like an allegorical way to explain capitalism than as an actual explanation of the economic incentives that have, have shaped capitalism. But what's significant to us is that it softened the mind, certainly of Americans, to be receptive of this kind of a model. Um, and then this is going to then in turn change the way that, you know, our perception of work ethic, of the rewards of work ethic, of the deserved nature of rewards of work ethic, have engendered a kind of um, invisibility to the nature of fatigue. So in this perception, um, the story would go that the wealthy are wealthy because not that they were born wealthy, um, but they naturally arrived at that point because of their ability to work harder than everybody else. And uh, that's certainly not the case, but that would be implied within that 
uh, belief system. And in this way, it's essentially the belief um, then that the state of extreme tiredness and fatigue is needed, Uh, not even because it's beneficial in and of itself, but because only people who can pass through the state of extreme tiredness and fatigue are believed to be capable of success, okay? Um, And those are sort of the economically predestined. And then we can say, well, then these are sort of the athletically predestined. And those of us who can't, um, it's because we have been filtered by the great sieve as, as being unworthy, um, and only the few, the worthy, will make their way through. And ergo, the hierarchy of performance is, you know, validated in the same way that the hierarchy of wealth is validated. Um, so it's acceptable to have others elevated over us and to perceive other people as amazing and worthy of worship and uh, idolation, um, I guess, because... Um, their capacities inherently exceed our our own. Uh, And of course, Engels would probably call this an example of false consciousness, of course, you know, lions, tigers, and Marxist interpretation of endurance training, oh my. But I mean, essentially there's, you know, something here that we we really need to, to question, which is, you know, are these people successful because of their capacity to resist um, the sort of, fatigue, preventing them from executing the workouts at the right frequency? Or are they successful because for reasons that they themselves might not actually understand, um, they're just doing better within the face of uh, the fatigue, right? In the sense that they're just maybe not experiencing as much fatigue. And that's just as maybe the wealthy um, are simply um, people who had you know, advantages in society that other people did not. Um, like maybe people who get up at three o'clock in the morning um, have insomnia or maybe people are lying. Gasp. What? People lie about things to gain advantage in culture? That seems very unlikely. Um, well, exp- you know, we're going to explore productivity <laughs> culture, quote unquote productivity uh, you can't see my air quotes here. Uh, productivity culture in another part of this series of episodes on fatigue, for example. So this right, we have this invisibility then, though, of it's like not only is fatigue invisible, but it's like we ourselves need to have experienced fatigue as invisible because it's the fact that we're not affected by it, that we push through it. And, you know, one of the sort of things is that there comes a point a lot of times in competition where you start to become tired and you keep going. But what do we see as a consequence of competition? We see as a consequence of competition, people are totally destroyed, right? And then what is fitness? Well, fitness is the ability to go out and compete and not be destroyed. But then if you continue to, you'll get to a level of competition where people will maybe set the tempo at a tempo where now you will have exceeded your fitness and then you will go back to being destroyed again by competition. You know, in theory, there can only maybe be like one person uh, in any given endurance discipline who's going to be able to, you know, go through the race without getting destroyed. And they, in theory, would be, you know, given everybody is, you know, actively working to keep up at the front of the race, then that person would be the person who wins, right? So the person 
who wins and the people who do the best are usually the people who experience the at least fatigue. So I would suggest that actually um, the reason why most people aren't succeeding to the extent that um, they want to is because they're overtrained, you know, and they're experiencing too much fatigue. But then the idea is, well, if you want to get to the level those other people are, then you have to go through this gauntlet of fatigue. But it's like, well, they're able to do that because, number one, they're not experiencing that much fatigue over the course of the race. And then number two, they're not that fatigued when the race starts. And then number three, they're not experiencing that much fatigue in training because they're able to exhibit progression. And it is true that people will get to a level um, athletically and then will be like, wow, I really got to take it up a notch. And then they might start to throw down into a pattern of fatigue and then they're just basically cycle at that level. But they're just they they had already reached such a high level of aerobic fitness you know, and it's, you can maintain your fitness very easily by overtraining. People do this all the time. So, right, we have this, right, the illusion, it's invisible, but this sort of, we see this as very similar to the Protestant work ethic notion, um, both in terms of A, the way in which we accept the structure of it, um, in terms of what it looks like, in terms of, you know, what kinds of people are able to do, what kinds of performances, how we explain that possibility of performance. And I think this is the reason why people react so sort of angrily to cheating uh, in sports um, in a way that they don't uh, for cheating in business, where business um, cheating is far more harmful to far more people. Uh, and endurance sports cheating is usually does comparatively less harm. And I understand that if you're a professional athlete who has um, you know, had your earnings or your opportunities limited um, by being outcompeted by somebody else who, you know, looked for a performance advantage outside of the bounds of the sport, it probably doesn't feel like that to you. But if we measure this just in terms of, you know, the financial impact of this, you know, in aggregate, um, you know, that's that's bigger. And And the point anyway is more so to be reflective of the fact that sports in particular are this moral, uh, moralistic um, playground where we look to see these virtues enacted, right? So hence why people are so incredibly, feel so incredibly betrayed um, when they find out that an athlete is is taking drugs. But, um, you know, nobody is like, I can't watch these Marvel movies because these people are all taking steroids. Nobody cares, right? Um, but in theory, that should be the same thing because aren't those actors out competing um, other people because of those performance enhancing um, benefits of the same kinds of PEDs that people might use for athletics. So does this apply, right? Does this apply over then? Or am I just simply evidencing the notion, um, as was discussed in the preceding episode, the notion that some people hold to be true, um, that there is essentially no meaningful connection between theory and then, you know, reality of practice. Uh, and I think that there is a connection. And to figure out this connection, let's start with something that might seem absurd. Let's think about the concept of movement and mobility. So people, you see stuff uh, very, it comes up on social media and it's been around, you know, before the, you know, current wave of social media popularity. But, you know, people balancing on things, people balancing on things and having people throw things at them, um, you know, people stretching, uh, people do yoga, 
all these things to try to like improve mobility, right? And this idea that, oh, okay, well, if I do this, this is going to solve my problem. And I think this is an example of blind, of willful blindness. Um, when we look at this stuff, we're using this as ways to basically be blind to the reality of fatigue. Like your body feels like that. Your legs are stiff. It's really hard for you to start running or riding for the first 10, 15, 20 minutes um, because of muscular fatigue. Okay. But people call it a lack of mobility. And then that lack of mobility is kind of like a false consciousness piece in and of itself, because it means that we don't have to now understand uh, what's actually going on, which is fatigue. Because it's like, oh, I need to be balanced. I need to stretch. Oh, my God, if I go and do yoga. And then people will say that things work. Um, and then we hear that and we're like, OK, well, I mean, if they're saying that's true, it must be true. But um, people lie about experiences constantly. And I think sometimes usually we think about lying as this thing, behavior that people do um, like very deliberately. And it's like this very Machiavellian thing. But I think a lot of lying that we see go on are people just saying things because they hear other people claiming to have a certain kind of experience. And there's this anxiety of like, well, what if I reveal, what are the social consequences if I reveal that I'm not having that experience? And those are the lies that are actually the easiest um, for us to believe because those people, it's like they want those things to be true. On some level, they know that what they're saying is a bunch of bullshit, but they want that to be true, right? So they'll go, oh, I feel so much better after doing yoga, right? It's like kind of like a weirdly placebo-esque effect, you know, like people, wow, you know, I, I use the foam roller and, you know, things like that. And it, it, these things aren't doing what they're claiming that they're doing. They're just not, right? But people want these things to be true, they also want to feel like they're included and that they're like, you know, that there's some benefit to being able to signal they're having the experiences they have. Right. And so they'll create these narratives and then we're swayed by um, by these narratives and we start to perceive these things um, as true. So let's think about a different way to think about the concept of, of quote unquote mobility or what mobility is trying to do. So there's this concept called muscle tension. And I don't, I'm not going to claim that I know a ton about muscle tension, but we know enough to sort of try to apply this in this context. So muscle tension and running in simplest terms is this way to just sort of explain why sometimes when you try to run fast, is it easy to run fast right away? And why sometimes when you try to run fast, is it just a struggle to create any speed? So this is like within the first five, 10 seconds right? Of why am I able to easily start moving? Why do I feel like I'm really struggling to get off, just get off the ground, so to speak, when I'm running? Now, I don't know how much validity muscle tension really has, but it is a different explanatory concept. And I think there are some, regardless of the overall mechanism of, of muscle tensioning, that you're changing the sort of tension, if you will, of your muscles. And regardless of the, the truth of that, I think in terms of causality, the association of certain physical practices of training with a subsequent effect on our ability to feel like we can run fast, I think is valid. So we think about with uh, super foam slash carbon fiber super shoes for running. Um, you know, what's impressive about these shoes is the way that these shoes are like flubber, right? If you ever saw 
that movie, right? They're basically springs, right? You're putting this thing on your foot and it's compressing and then returning energy, if you will. And that is what allows people to run faster. It's not, you know, ultimately mind-blowingly faster, but it's the first time a running shoe has been made where people can put them on and actually like be like, wow, this feels different um, versus people, you know, putting on shoes in the past and being like, this shoe makes me feel so much faster. And it's like, okay, struggling athlete, here's a check for a thousand dollars for telling lies about something you didn't experience while using this product, right? That kind of stuff. Um, which I love how as a culture, we just are totally fine with that. We don't care that athletes are constantly lying to us about everything in order to get endorsement money. Um, but then if an athlete takes PEDs in order to create basically the entertainment that we love to consume, then we get extremely angry and we cancel them. Um, anyway, so those shoes, right? I have evidence for myself that they're markedly more metabolically efficient than a traditional training shoe. You know, that's not going to take you from zero to hero and it hasn't taken me from zero to hero, but you can measure it's like an additional unit, you know, an additional 10 watts, you know, to 20 watts, sort of depending on the conditions and what shoes you're comparing to what shoes. Um, that basically the lactate will be lower at the same uh, watts on the stride pod in a super shoe than in a traditional, you know, basic training shoe, you know, and that is a measurable difference. You know, that's uh, not some sort of imaginary uh, placebo effect. That's a real difference. Um, it's a performance difference. Even if the metabolic effect is quote is caused in a placebo esque way, the actual metabolic change is significantly different such that it will lead to a different uh, measured outcome in competitive performance or training performance if you ever wear these shoes in training. So, you know, in high school, I used to spend a lot of time basically trying to pull my quads apart, you know, stretching like I was like a dancer or something on the infield before running the 800 meter for track meets. Um, as when I in particularly remember doing that. Uh, but static stretching, I, we know, now, and I didn't know this at the time, can reduce muscular strength by up to 30%. And uh, despite that, people feel very, very strongly that stretching is important, essential. Like people get legitimately upset, like to the point of where it's like if this was the Middle Ages, they would probably tie you to a, a post and set you on fire <laughs> if you tried to tell them that stretching was bad. We're a little bit more. Uh, I don't know, sophisticated or maybe a little, just a little bit more constrained. But either the way, either way, fortunately, we no longer uh, just set people on fire all of the time for thinking or suggesting anything different than what we might already know. But you know, so not only was this process probably decreasing my ability to run the half mile, but the reason why I felt the need to stretch my quads in the first place is because they were quote unquote tight. The reason why I thought they were tight in the first place is because that's what I had been told that sensation was, right? Whereas at first I experienced this as, well, I can't really run fast. My muscles hurt, which now I would say is fatigue. Well, at the time, all you need to stretch, you're tight, you know, well, that's not, that's not useful, right? That's an issue of, of, you know, mobility, right? So in a, in a different sense, if we want to use this muscle tension concept, it's like, you know, in, in the same way that super shoes work, it's like sort of the loss of the super shoe. And if you do a lot of, it's interesting because if you do a lot of running in super shoes and then you go back to a traditional trainer, oftentimes it does feel really weird, 
right? And you do feel kind of dead to the ground. But I think I find that oftentimes has to do with fatigue where I try to use these shoes for some of my training sessions um, where I'm doing specific work that's a little bit quicker, not because I'm looking for some sort of, you know, miracle um, work workout where I'm trying to run some crazy fast time, but just because um, I find that the shoes will hurt my feet sometimes if I haven't, you know, worn them at all, except in the race. So I try to use them in training so that, you know, I feel comfortable wearing them. And maybe that's just convincing my brain that it's comfortable, but either way, it seems to be necessary. So, right, that springiness, that muscle tension, you know, the same concept that's that's not there, right? Um, And so that's, but that was interpreted to me and then became interpreted by me from what I learned as a a concept of uh, a lack of mobility. But if we look at this from this um, muscle tension thing, we see this differently. And so this concept that you can different kinds of exercise essentially increase or decrease the springiness of this uh, is significant, right? And if you think about, here's a list of, this is from Steve Magnus's website. I thought this was pretty good, um, right? Cite your sources. So here's a list of things that he says would increase the springiness. So he says sprint work, both uh, flat and hill sprints, um, weight training, um, ballistic slash power work, like med ball throws, jump squats, um, faster pace or quote unquote rhythm work um, for 5k, for example, for a 5k runner doing one mile pace work, uh, plyometric strides, uh, running and spikes on harder services. Okay. You know, I, I, I think some of that stuff you'd have to tinker with, right? Because it's very easy there to do those things hard and be flat. I don't, for me, I don't think doing hill sprints is going to lead to me feeling quicker the next day, right? But if I still weighed 143 pounds, maybe that would be a different experience. Things that decrease it, which I think is, this is more interesting. Um, Longer duration work. So just exercising for a really long time, very taxing workouts. Like he says, examples, anaerobic 400s, which basically would mean running 400s essentially as fast as you can so that you've reached absolute failure um, when, and then you still do another couple reps. Threshold work, um, which I would point out, is not the way in which I'm referring to threshold, but this is in the traditional concept, or sort of mid-traditional concept. I don't know. But this is sort of the mainstream concept of threshold. You might think of this as being like LT2 um, in the triathlon or world or the world of people who use um, the two-lactate threshold system. Um Moderate-paced aerobic running and soft surface running like sand, heavy grass, wood chip trails, etc. Now, you know, this may all be true or it may not be true. But I think what is significant in this, to me, practically speaking, is that um, there's an attempt to try to say, well, what kinds of training are essentially making us so we can't run fast? And maybe it's not muscle tension. Maybe muscle tension is really just this attempt, again, to try to like understand what's going on with fatigue. And if that's the case, then it suggests that the longer we go, the harder we go, um, then the more fatigued we're going to get. And it suggests that like even moderate-paced work can really make us slow. Um, and all the other things above are essentially things that are just very, very short amounts of work, Right. 
So when we do longer stuff, we tend to get more tired because we're doing something for longer. It's more fatiguing. And when we do shorter stuff, we tend to get less tired because it's less fatiguing. And I think one of the embedded principles that we can conclude here is that training that's too extensive or intensive is going to limit performance. And therefore, how do we know if training is too extensive or intensive if performance is limited? So if I go out and I try to do power, um, specific power in a run session or a bike session, and I can't do it, then whatever I have done leading up to that over X amount of time was too extensive and too intensive. Okay, that's how you know. Right. It's not based on some concept of, well, this guy says to do six times a mile and they say to do four times a mile. And then you know, this guy says to do three hours of sweet spot on your training ride or whatever. It's if performance is bad, then the training created too much fatigue. And in training, we oftentimes do exactly the opposite. We literally train so much that we can't come back at the next time when we imagine we might want to train and be able to train with the same level of proficiency. And then we look to things uh, like recovery and foam rolling, um, which evidence does not support. We look to develop mobility and say, oh, I need to mobilize these tissues. The body's tired. That's what you're experiencing. It's fatigue. And now you have to wait. Here's an easy thought experiment to demonstrate this. Um, to demonstrate that the reason why we can't move fast is because our muscles are tired. So um, one of the things I've been doing is uh, I've been lifting on bench press in the barn a couple times a week, and I'm very bad at it in terms of how much weight I can move. But, you know, I have also been trying to restrict the amount of total training that I'm doing in order to like manage my fatigue. So then I have days where it's like, I'd like to do something a little bit more physically active, but I don't want to use the legs. Um, I mean, I want to, but right in terms of, I want to go out and do more running and riding, but I'm like, I, if I'm not improving, then that's literally a waste of my time. Right. So trying to eliminate what's extensive, what's intensive based on what's happening with the performance profile of the training session. Anyway, so I've found um, that if I lift more than three times a week, I can no longer continue to gradually increase the weight. And the weight starts to feel, in a sense, heavier and heavier, right? And I'm struggling to do it. Um, if I lift two, two days or three days a week, I'm then over time have been able to continue to increase my weight. So we look at these and we say, which of these is more desirable? And my answer to that is that, well, it's really, the answer is really progression is fitness, right? You know, fitness is a process of progression. So what's more desirable is whatever leads to progression. Because I think then, you know, you get into this whole, oh, well, low volume is actually better. And you're admitting low volume is better. I'm not admitting low volume is better. Um, low volume is just deliberately doing very little for a dogmatic reason. Um, just as high volume can be deliberately uh, doing um, a lot for a dogmatic reason. And one of the things we've been trying to articulate on this podcast since last winter is the importance of training within our proficiency threshold, right? In that proximal zone of development. And our fatigue is how, if we're responsive to our fatigue, then are we able to, I hope, right? Are we able to reach the point where we're able to be responsive 
to the demand um, that we need to apply to ourselves in training. For this demand that we think we should uh, apply, right? So the reason why we can't then run or ride the way we want isn't because we're stiff or inflexible. That's freaking muscular fatigue. That's it, right? If I try to do my little weightlifting routine uh, too frequently, the amount of weight starts to decline. I have to take weight off of the bar in order to do the same number of repetitions, okay? That's not in progress. That's the opposite of progress. And it's not just weight training. I mean, if you want to train well for anything, this is true, but it's absolutely true that uh, if you want to train for endurance, you need to manage fatigue. Now, the problem is, conceptually, that a lot of us recognize that, well, if we want to get better at endurance, like, the more we're, we're able to train, the better. And I agree, right? But, like, we can only train as much as we can respond to. And by definition, if we're not progressing, then the fact that we're training more becomes basically useless. So our training should be based on our ability to exhibit progression. Are we getting faster? And then, you know, people might say, well, but could you get faster, but you're not really improving your endurance? That's not true, right? So if you raise your threshold, then you are proportionally going to naturally influence what you can do for any other distance. You know, I, I think that this idea that there's this essentialist quality where, you know, you can improve your efficiency um, without like improving your capacity for endurance, I think is, is untrue, you know? Um, and I, and I enjoy long runs and I, I think those, those are beneficial and valuable. Um, but I, I don't think that there's this idea that threshold is somehow totally independent of endurance. I think that if you take a pace that is a low enough percentage of your threshold, you can probably do that for a long time, right? Because I think the the energetics, if you will, or the metabolic factors of exertion are more important than anything else in determining uh, how long you can endure at a given effort. Or you could say another way that that takes that metabolic issue off of the table and allows you to get to the point where the limiting factor is your mus- muscles sort of blowing up, right? But then people go, oh, okay, wow, but that's it's the muscles. Well, that's survivorship bias, right? Because you really want to look at all the people who didn't even get to that point, um, and they didn't get to that point because their threshold was too low in the first place. So, you know, and fatigue, right, limits performance, and performance isn't just racing. We want to think about the performances. Everything we do is an act of performance, um, I know performance is sometimes used to be this like special, uh, you know, word of this, you know, unique state or whatever, but we don't need to think about it like that, right? It's just, um, it's just anytime we're doing something, it's, it's a kind of a performance. Uh, for me this fall, when I changed my exercise schedule for the start of the academic school year, I wanted to try to do these LT running sessions every day. And, you know, what I found is that, like, it just doesn't work for me. Um, you know, eventually my workouts sort of flatlined and then they started to regress. I started to feel dead all the time. I aggravated a hamstring problem that I've had intermittently for a long time that only really becomes an issue when I'm getting really 
fatigued um, and, you know, just exhausting the muscles. Uh, shins started hurting again, you know, and which is going back to July, I had got uh, the shin pain to just immediately dissipate by reducing my intensity after sort of reassessing what my threshold was for my running. And so, right, I had to recognize this was a problem. And it wasn't easy to recognize that because there's the challenge. The difference isn't the difference between theory and reality. The difference between theory and reality is when you sit down in an environment and you are metacognitive, you can work through something. But then getting those habits of mind to then translate to like sort of your default thinking when you're not in that environment. Okay. And that doesn't disprove the utility of a theory. It proves the necessity of like really actively trying to work on our own brain to think about this stuff in different ways. But our romanticized ideals of what training should be and should look like is also, you know, a product or a cause of, you know, historically, you know, chronically uh, overtraining, which, you know, I freely admit that that's been true to my experience. Um, and I think that, A, that's not uncommon. You know, I think that's the norm. Um, you know, but B, I don't think I understood for the longest time that that's what was going on, you know, because it was like, well, that is now, okay, finally I'm training, right? Okay, I really want to feel like I'm training. And well, we I learned to interpret that as being absolutely freaking exhausted. And it's in the essence of the sport. Um, people like Gordon Peary, you know, have been publishing their memoirs or biographies about training for the longest time where they're telling us how hard and how monotonous training is. And so that is getting into the um, ideology of what it means to train for endurance sport and gets into the romanticism and, uh, you know, the need to lean into those romanticized narratives is just, again, further emphasized through people trying to develop entertainment media and turn their athletic experience is to a form of entertainment, right? Because having people do everything and be like, yeah, it's easy. I think I'm going to go have an orange soda. Like people don't care about that, right? People want to see stuff that are, is like non-normative, that's epic, right? That, you know, meets that, you know, Homeric ideal. Um, but like, so Gordon Peary, like what are the experiences of these people? Because those experiences are informing this narrative. So in his book, Gordon Peary describes just running around cinder tracks uh, every day, doing max intensity intervals twice a day. Um, he spent an incredible amount of time doing extremely uncomfortable physical activity in the most under-stimulating, under under-rewarding environments possible. And I don't think he was doing it because he was an idiot. I think he was doing it because he was evolving his strategy within the informational context of the space in which he was doing it. But then these people are all, all totally overtrained and so then they go to race and then racing is incredibly painful and uncomfortable because their body is exhausted. And so then these ideas like, okay, this is how racing feels. This is how training feels, right? And then that trickles down um, like bad economic policy. And all of a sudden, everybody is thinking about this stuff in a way that really doesn't make any uh, functional or um, even theoretical sense. Right. That, you know, then you're, oh, well, if I'm not feeling like crap, I'm not racing hard. Right. Well, that's not what's going on. Right. The reality is those dudes and those women 
um, who have been in these um, states of uh, exertion were chronically underperforming. And chronically because, you know, they were underperforming in the workouts uh, and the races, right? That's, that's just not how this stuff works. So somewhere uh, along the way, we learned uh, not to avoid and reduce that stuff um, whenever uh, we want or are feeling that, right? Instead, we go, we gave into this like coal miner <laughs> narrative, right? And, and we're coal mining without a canary, right? We don't even know what we're doing. We're training to induce fatigue. We're not training to induce progress. We think that if we produce fatigue, then we will progress and that our progression is going to be proportional to the fatigue that we induced. And that's just, it's just not true though, because if we're fatigued, we cannot progress. Okay. Because we can't progress because we're just, and we can measure this, right? We can measure this, right? But, you know, Yes, the rate of progression is variable, maybe for different people, sure. But in general, we should be seeing progression. Um, because if we're not, then that means we have to change something. And so then, you know, this then becomes a paradigm shift uh, because our principle of adaptation is based on the idea that we respond to stress. And people say small stimulus, small response, um, small, re- um, bigger stimulus, bigger response. But really, it's not about the objective training amount. It's about the objective training response. So what, um, like muscle tension, even if it's not ultimately validated, um, what that model of thinking is doing, right, is it's helping us to recognize that actually it's the training that we're doing that's influencing our ability to uh, perform at a particular level. It's not a lack or a necessity for, a lack of or need for, these weird things like mobility, right? And that we've created things like mobility to take up this void that we've willfully, I would argue, willfully created and ignoring the realities of fatigue and the presence of fatigue. Um, Of course, we have an ability to adapt, but I think the response we get through overtraining perhaps becomes increasingly muted over time. And I think eventually maybe it's possible that we become resistant to training because eventually our body is like traumatized and it's just not willing to accept the overtraining anymore. And, you know, that maybe, or maybe it's our brain, right? That our brain just becomes traumatized and eventually it just won't put up with that anymore. You know, because it is true that people get better um, off of overtraining. Um, That happens all the time because most people are overtrained. But it's also true that I think if you look at in if you look at it on a case-by-case basis instead of in an aggregate basis, I think what you're seeing is like progression in sport, you know, over time is evident, both generation and generation and across an athlete's time scale, but that the actual case-by-case experiences of these athletes oftentimes are miserable and full of confusion and frustration and an inability to translate performance to racing. I listened to this interview with uh, Cam Wirth, the Ineos cyclist and triath- long-distance triathlete guy, and he said that uh, if you can't do it in training, you can't do it in racing. And so here's the paradigm test for you. What do you think when you hear that quote? If you can't do it in training, you can't do it in racing. If you hear that and think, I must crush myself in training so I can be ready to be handle, handle the race, then you're on, on the bandwagon. 
if you hear that and think, okay, I need to make the progression in training because all racing is, is an opportunity to show what my fitness level currently is. Now you're maybe moving in a different direction, a different perspective. So yeah, I think you can outperform your training, but that's because um, in you outperform your training in a race, but that's because in the race, you're going to allow yourself to run into, ride into, push into the level of fatigue that you don't want to be doing in training. And I don't know what Cam Worf thinks. I would tend to think Cam Worf is probably somebody who trains really hard because there really are very few to any um, athletes who sort of are allowed to advance through the system of sport. Like it, we've talked about this going back to the beginning of the podcast that um, only the athletes who are willing to put up with this kind of stuff are sort of filtered for and selected out by the system. And the rest of us are just told, well, you're not athletic, but we're really being, being told we're not athletic basically because we're sensitive to our level of fatigue and that the system eliminates all of those people and then just puts um, people who will ignore their fatigue and pits those people against one another. So if you can reach X level in training, um, then you will be able to reach X level in racing. But the way in which we do that is critical. And if you don't manage fatigue properly, then no particular training uh, plans or strategies are going to be effective because the like ultimate strategy here is to think about fatigue differently, to manage fatigue differently. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you've enjoyed this podcast, recommend it to somebody else you think would be interested in the kind of ideas we talk about here at Black Cats Run. You can also check us out on our Instagram page at Black Cats Run. Next section of this Run Me Down episode arc where we're talking about different perspectives and ideas of fatigue. We're going to talk more specifically about overtraining. We'll catch you next time.